It's Philosophy Talk. The ancients believed in a world suffused with meaning and purpose. Can we? I just happen to have a Dylan song here, which uh, says this better than I can say it. Darkness at the break of noon. Darkness at noon. I've got nothing, Ma, to live up to. It's easy to see without looking too far that nothing is really sacred. Not much is really sacred. Is it possible to re-enchant the world? What an opportunity. Where could meaning come from? From God? From nature? From the self? Our guest is Hubert Dreyfus from UC Berkeley. We can now give things any meaning that we please. We don't need any external authority. It's all right, Ma. It's life and life only. Nihilism and meaning. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Today we're recording the program in front of a live audience at the Marsh Theater, San Francisco's breeding ground for new performance. Our thinking originated at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. Welcome to Philosophy Talk. Our topic today is nihilism and meaning. Nihilism, or nihilism, take your choice. Nothing matters, so that doesn't. (laughs) Nihilism, of course, is based on a Latin word for nothing, nihil. Nihilism is used for a lot of positions in philosophy, Ken. The position that there's nothing at all, the position that we know nothing at all, that there are no moral principles at all, and virtually any other philosophical position that could be framed using the word nothing. But the most common use, and what we'll explore today, is nihilism as a view that nothing we do, nothing we create, nothing we love, has any meaning or value whatsoever. Wow. You know, John, nihilism not only captures a philosophical point of view, but but a certain mood, a a certain anxiety and melancholy. Is this all there is? Is all of humanity just a paltry few years of events on an insignificant planet about which the universe cares nothing at all? Does anything matter? Uh, For most people, it isn't a problem posed by reading philosophy, but by absorbing the modern point of view, modern life, the minuscule place in the world that humans have, that science and philosophy have, have taught us that humans have. Nihilism first came into the philosophical vocabulary a couple hundred years ago as an accusation. It didn't start off with a philosopher saying, I am a nihilist, but with a philosopher saying to another philosopher, you are a nihilist. Some philosophers felt that if what certain other philosophers said was true, then everything would be meaningless. So that, and that was supposed to function as a sort of reductio ad absurdum, right? Because of course there's meaning, but your view undercuts meaning. You know, a, a fellow named Friedrich Jacobi said that Kantian philosophy... My favorite philosopher, particularly as developed by Johann Fichte, led to nihilism, the view that nothing mattered. That's because Fichte's philosophy didn't rest on faith and revelation, but on a limited conception of reason. He emphasized the self as the beginning of philosophy. Jacobi, the accuser, I think, put his finger on the fundamental dialectic of nihilism. 
Most religions, many philosophies, and the common beliefs of many people suppose that the source of value is something beyond us, something beyond humans, something beyond the physical world, something beyond the natural world. If not God, then some transcendent realm, maybe a realm of transcendent forms like Plato thought. Nihilism as an accusation is a challenge. If you don't believe in God or something else transcendent and eternal, why does anything matter? You know, and then by, but by the time we get to Nietzsche, another one of my favorite philosophers, we have a philosopher actually embracing nihilism in a way. He says, God is dead, everything is permanent, and hooray for that. But there's a little bit of ambiguity there, Ken. Think of Jacobi's basic point as an argument. First premise, all meaning and value must have a transcendent source. Second premise, if you don't have God, faith, and revelation, then there is no transcendent source. Conclusion, on your godless view, whether you admit it or not, there is no meaning. Now, I don't really think Nietzsche accepted the conclusion that there was not any meaning. Well, I, I see your point, and it's, it's a good point. He, he accepted, though, that there wasn't the kind of meaning that Jacobi wanted, but not that there was no meaning. No, I, I think Nietzsche would qualify the first premise. Some kinds of meaning and value need a transcendent source. So, given the second premise, there is no transcendent source, you get a modified conclusion. There are no meanings and values of that kind. But I don't think Nietzsche really thought that there were no meanings and values and that life was meaningless. Well, it's, it's complicated. I mean, in one sense, uh, he clearly is a nihilist. There is no transcendent meaning to ground the meaning that comes out of human projects and commitments. But in another sense, he's not, I mean, although he's a little confusing about this. Human projects and commitments are themselves, just in themselves, a valid source of, of meaning. So maybe in these broad strokes, this bird's eye way of looking at it thing, our, our very eminent guest today is in spirit a Nietzschean, if I'm sure not in detail. Well, that's Hubert Dreyfus, professor emeritus at Berkeley, author of many influential books and co-author of a forthcoming book that's right on our topic. It's called A Life Worth Living, Luring Back the Gods in Our Secular Age. He'll join us in just a bit. And we'll also want our live audience here at the Marsh to join in the conversation, too. But first, a roving philosophical reporter, April Domboski, talks to someone who found nihilism at the root of a musical revolution. She files this report. Punk music was a backlash against the hippie and disco generations. Young musicians in the late 70s were sick of the political messages and commercial images of bands like the Eagles and Journey. They started writing songs about hopelessness, despair, and no future. It's a catchy phrase. There's a lot of young people who could relate to that. Writer Jack Boulware has co-authored a book on the history of the punk scene in San Francisco. Gimme Something Better chronicles the early days when art students watched British punk bands insult newscasters on TV and follows the scene into the 80s when things got really nihilistic. It turned into this kind of slam dancing mosh pit kind of scene and uh, people got bloodied at the show. Somebody got their nose broken. It was extremely violent. It's just this huge outburst of adrenaline, energy. Somebody screams for 11 seconds. You can't understand any of the words and then it's over. Younger and younger kids joined the scene, especially runaways who left broken homes, but they found even less structure among other punks. There's parties all night long. People are shooting you up with speed. You don't know where you are. You're awake for three days. I don't think any of them really were consciously thinking, I'm a nihilist and I'm 11 years old. 
they were really just trying to survive. Things got even worse when the skinheads showed up. Nightclubs would have to be closed because too many skinheads would show up to the show, pick a bunch of fights. A lot of people would see Kyle in the audience. But even in its most nihilistic manifestations, punk was still a movement. People gathered for concerts, they started magazines, they connected over the music. Fans found meaning in the meaninglessness. Writer Eric Davis says this is common in counterculture movements. Individual nihilism can also coexist in meaningful activity, but it becomes harder and harder to say what it means when it's a way that people draw together and bond and share and you know relate and communicate. Like all of those things are inherently meaning-making positions. Even violence and apathy take on new connotations. The nihilism of punk becomes, in a way, part of a performance where the performance itself actually has a lot of meaning, culturally constructive meaning involved in it. Eventually, punks launched a backlash against their own backlash. The search for meaning became outright. The Nazis moved on. Kids rejected drugs and became straight edge. Author Jack Boulware says they organized and helped each other. People started organizing squatting projects. Soup kitchens started working with punk kids. There was some organization around how young people can, you know, be part of the scene and not just get chewed up by the system. The 80s ended, and by the 90s, the punk rock kids had to grow up. Many of them left their nihilistic teen years far in the past. A lot of people became professors, lawyers, psychologists, uh, youth counselors, drug counselors. For those people who lived through it, they wanted to make the place a better world, and so that's where they took their life. For Philosophy Talk, I'm April Domboski. Want to hear more? You can find the complete episode on iTunes Music, or for unlimited listening, become a subscriber at philosophytalk.org.